Well, listen, if you have a Bible, um, you're going to open up to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 4. So just so you know, we probably only are going to get through one verse today. One verse. So, um, so I need to kind of set the table for you a little bit this week and explain to you some things that are happening. Um, so how many of you would agree with me? Sometimes the Bible is really hard to understand. Anybody ever feel like that? Raise your hands really high. I mean, like, really high. Okay. For most of us, right? I mean, the Bible can be, like, super overwhelming and challenging. And so it's, it's uh, God's word to us, but it is literature. And there are different, you know, different forms of literature. You know, there are historical stories in the Bible. There are poems in the Bible. Uh, there are um, different types of storytelling in the Bible. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the forms, uh, the way the Bible uses stories, is something called a parable. And a parable is um, a story that most people understand, and that Jesus primarily would tell parables. He would tell stories that everybody would understand to illustrate or to demonstrate or to reveal a spiritual truth that would be difficult to grasp or to understand. Um, Mark chapter 12 is a parable that Jesus tells to religious leaders. And he was teaching them about how they were rejecting, um, how they have rejected not only the prophets from God that would come and speak to them about God's kingdom, but Jesus would tell this parable about how they rejected him um, and that they crucified him, but that he would rise again. And so it's this parable that Jesus told them to illustrate a spiritual truth. Oftentimes, the Bible also uses something called a metaphor. Now, a metaphor um, is not a story. It is a word picture that represents something else. I'm using, I've got a, I've got, I want to talk about this, and I'm going to use another word to illustrate this over here. So here's some, you know, and sometimes metaphors are really hard to understand if you don't understand the vernacular of the time. Like, we have metaphors that we use all the time, like, Constantly. Um, Ed back here is a principal over at Start High School. And let's go Spartans. All right. Okay, maybe not. Um, that did not work. <laughs> so <laughs> Ed might say a metaphor like this. Like he might walk in and say, man, the school was a zoo today, right? And that's a metaphor. He is, it's not literally a zoo. We understand when Ed says, a classroom was a zoo. What is he saying? It's like, it's like crazy today. It's like, you know, chaos today. It's like people are, you know, acting all wild and you're, you know, right? It's a zoo. Um, if we say that Jason over here is a night owl, it's a metaphor. I mean, is he really a night owl? Obviously not. It's a word picture, right? Jason likes to stay up late at night. He's a night owl. That's probably not true, but... You know, um, lots of metaphors that we use all the time. Um, we might say Bill in the back has a golden tongue, right? Now, recently, uh, I, I saw there are some stories about some mummies that they have opened up, and they've actually found mummies that have not literal golden tongues, but they found a golden, you know, like leafy type thing that, that was on top of where their tongue had been to represent that they had golden tongues. They didn't really have golden tongues, 
But when you say, when you say, when I say Bill has a golden tongue, what am I saying? Bill can talk really what? Eloquently, right? These are all metaphors. If we say one more, if we say someone has, if we say Dr. Daniels in the back who did announcements, Dr. Daniels has the Midas touch. What are we saying about that? Everything he touches is successful. All that he does is is successful. Those are all metaphors. Like, I'm using a word or picture to represent another picture, to help us understand this over here. It's a metaphor. And the Bible uses metaphors all the time, frequently. And one of the metaphors that we're going to read about today, maybe, is um, in our passage... The Apostle Peter, who was one of the disciples, is talking about Jesus. And he says about Jesus, Jesus is a cornerstone. He's a cornerstone. Now, I don't know. Who cares? What's, what's a cornerstone? Is he literally a cornerstone? No. He's saying that Jesus, that our lives are meant to be built upon and around Jesus Christ. That Jesus, that our lives are meant to come in alignment with Jesus Christ. All of our lives are meant to be lived, built upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sets the, the alignment. He sets the direction for all of our lives as Christ followers. He's the cornerstone. Jesus is the one who binds everybody in this room and everybody watching online. If you call yourself a Christ follower, no matter who you are and where you're at, Jesus is the one who we're supposed to build our lives upon. Jesus is the one who sets our lives in alignment. And Jesus is the one who binds all of us together. That's what it means when Peter says Jesus is our cornerstone. Later on in our passage, he would say not only that, he is, Peter would say that Jesus is a living stone. In the Old Testament, Oftentimes the Old Testament would use that picture, that metaphor of a stone or a rock. And it would talk about, it would represent God's kingdom here on earth. When they would say that the temple was, it was like a stone or Israel. It would represent God's presence on earth, God's kingdom on earth. It would represent God's protection. It would represent the unchanging nature of who God is. You can always depend upon upon God. He's our rock. We can always depend upon him. He's never changing. God is our rock. Jesus is our rock. He's a living stone. Why is he a living stone? Because he's not dead. He was crucified, but he was resurrected. And Peter would say, our lives are like living stones. In other words, when Peter says that your life is like a living stone, he's saying, Eddie, you need to look like Jesus Christ. Good to see Eddie. The characteristics about your life need to reflect Jesus Christ's life. It's a metaphor. It represents, it talks about, our passage talks about who Jesus is. Something else that our passage talks about that you need to understand um, is this passage, Peter's going to talk about our identity. He's going to talk about who you are in Jesus Christ. And identity is really, really important. Knowing who you are, not only whose you are, but who you are. 
having an identity and knowing what God says is so important about our lives. Now, I was thinking about this this past week. And I don't know, how many of you guys um, are excited about 8.15 tonight? What happens at 8.15? That's right, buddy. Lions play tonight, right? Finally, right? Let's hope, right? Finally, you know, you know and, and a lot of you guys are probably not football. You know, they don't care about football. But I love to watch football and I love to read about the, the Lions. Now, just hear me, okay, because I know some of you are checking out. But listen, listen, listen. One of the interesting things I've been reading over the last couple weeks, all these guys talk about, or, and women too, talk about the Lions. And they say, a part of the strength of this football team is that they have a what? An identity. They know who they are. They know who they are. They have an identity. And their coach, his name is Dan Campbell, he has, he has spoken in and, and, and built this identity for their team. And it's helped, have, helped them be successful. And so there are typically teams historically when it's fourth down, you know, almost always they'll kick, you know, they'll punt the ball or whatever, or kick a field goal. And Dan Campbell, I think more than anybody else in, in the history of football, in professional football, has probably gone for it on fourth down more than any, like they've, they haven't punted or kicked the field. Like they go for it all the time. The players don't even look over to the coach like, what are we going to do next, coach? They know what they're going to do because there is an identity and that's helped them be successful even in the middle when they were having, when they had a couple games where they were losing and it's like they have an identity though. They stuck to it. Same thing with uh, Team 144, right? Right? University of Michigan, right? The national champions, right? People have talked about them. You know, they've talked about them during the season. And what's helped them be successful is they have night. They know who they are. And they don't veer from that. And as Christians, the Bible tells us, it teaches us who we are. It helps us to understand what our, our identity is and who our identity is in, who we are. And it's like so important. Peter was writing this letter. It's called 1 Peter because we have multiple letters. This is the first one that we have. That's why it's 1 Peter. It's written by Peter. And most theologians tell us it was probably written in about 60 AD. And during this time, the Caesar was Nero. And Nero was notorious for persecuting Christians. They got blamed for things and he persecuted them. It was like, you know, he, he enjoyed it. He's, he's told that, that he would take Christians and he would put them on stakes and he would light them on fire and he would bring light to his gardens by having Christians on stakes that he had lit on fire. Horrendous stories about how Nero persecuted Christians just for following Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just the government. It wasn't just the Caesar who was persecuting Christians. Like everyday common people would persecute Christians. Like it was commonplace during when Peter was writing this letter. The Christians were kind of being persecuted. They're fleeing all over that, that uh, what we call Asia Minor, that Turkey, Israel, Greece area because of the persecution. They were being scattered everywhere because of the persecution. People were persecuting Christians because they were receiving communion, right? This is the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. They thought, oh, you guys are cannibals. And they would persecute them. They didn't worship other idols. They affected the economy. And they're like, oh, you guys are 
screwing up everything here. And they would persecute them. They had these, um, they, had, they had feasts together. They would call love feasts. And they thought that they were incestuous. And they were persecuting. They were totally misunderstood. And persecution would happen all the time. And Peter's writing this letter to these Christians who are being persecuted. And he talked to them about their identity, about who they are. Because if you don't know who you are in Christ, what Christ says about you in the middle of persecution, if you don't know who you are, in the middle of when your life, when you, there's suffering and devastation and grief. And if you don't know who you are, it's so easy to waver and be like a wave tossed back and forth and to be unstable, the Bible says, in everything that you do. If you don't know who you are. And Peter had to remind them what their identity was. This whole series is called When No One Is Watching. If you don't know who you are, if you don't have this identity in Christ, when no one is watching, then you're going to find yourself compromising in your life. You're going to find yourself compromising. Don't, you don't need to turn there, Hayden, but verse 11 says that Peter talks about, about sin that wages war against our soul. Peter's like, be cautious and careful. And you need to cut out this, this sin because it wages war against your soul. What he's saying is that, that there are these desires that everybody has. It's part of our fallen nature that wage war against the spiritual person inside of us. And if you don't know what your identity, who you are, what God has called you to, then you're going to find yourself compromising and giving in to these fleshly desires because they are waging war against your soul, that spiritual person. You know, and some of you guys know this past week, um, you know, if you were in first service, I had to, I walked out of first service and and I was up giving, just giving announcements, and I couldn't even make it through announcements. And last week, um, I had uh, two people passed away within 24 hours. And um, one of them had been a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine who had been on our staff for nine years. And uh, so he was, not, he was a partner in ministry. He helped kind of form the DNA of our church that we have here today. And uh, we were on staff together for nine years, and he was only 48 years old. And um, he had blood cancer, and he battled it for six years. And last, I think it was last week on Thursday, his wife texts me, and she said, Pastor Brad, she said, I don't, I don't think that Pat's going to make it through the night. We're, at, we're in ICU up in Detroit at the cancer center. I said, Ruth, do you want me to come? And she said, yes. And so I went up there. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and, you know, um, just the way I'm wired, I thought, well, I'm only going to be there for, for 20 or 30 minutes. That's it, you know. I'm going to go in and, you know, pray and, you know, leave. And um, I got there. Again, it was like 10 o'clock at night. And Pat had lost a ton of weight. He was down to 140 pounds. And when I got there, he 
looked much, much larger than that. He had, there was so much swelling that was going on in his body. And um, uh, he, you know, I, his eyes were closed and there was really no movement when I got there. And I thought, oh, you know, um, he's probably, you know, slipping into, slipping in from this life into the next. And, you know, he's probably not conscious of anything. And uh, right after I got there, the doctors had come in and they began pressing on his stomach. And as they pressed on his stomach, all of a sudden his brow furled and he started, you know, making faces, pain faces. And I said to the doctors, I said, oh, he's aware. They're like, oh, yeah, he's totally aware of everything going on right now. And when that, when they said those words to me, everything in that moment changed for me. And, you know, um, I ended up, again, I thought I'd be there for 20 or 30 minutes, you know, and that's where God wanted me to be and where I needed to be. And seven hours later, you know, I was there for seven hours that night. And uh, that night, you know, it was, it was, Peter says that be cautious and be weary or aware of this sin in our lives, these fleshly desires, because they wage war against your soul. And I have to tell you that that night being there, you know, I've been around, I've been doing it for, for, I don't know, 34 years. I've been a pastor and I've had the privilege of being in a lot of rooms with families and so on and so forth and around a lot of people who passed away. And that night affected my soul. It affected the spiritual person of who I am. And I believe I walked away closer to Christ in that experience and from that night. And part of what happened that evening is it was, there's this thing about Christianity, there's, a, a, there's this, the paradox of Christianity. And um, the greatest is the least, right? The greatest is the servant of all of us. And there are things like that, you know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. I mean, there's all these paradoxes. Um, God is sovereign and God is in control of everything, yet he gives us free will. I don't understand how those things happen. I don't understand how that night, as I spent seven hours with Ruth and with her, her family, the kids and her extended family, how it was a heartbreaking night. It was, it was heartbreaking. Pat was only 48 years old. And um, to be able to, to, to be there and have to witness all that broke my heart. The effect of sin upon his body. Like, I don't believe for a moment that God designed us or created us to die physically. That God created us to have eternal life. And, you know, the effects of the fall in the garden that we do die, right? And we pass from this temporal life into eternal life. And so we were seeing the effects of sin, not Pat's sin in particular, but just sin in general. We live in a fallen and broken world. And he was going to die that evening of cancer. And it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to see how much his kids were just, it was just, it was heartbreaking. But yet at the same moment, it was this paradox because it was, I, 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 it was glorious that evening. Like, again, there was no fear in that room. There was grief. There was sorrow in that room. There was heartbreak. But there wasn't anger in that room. There wasn't bitterness in that room. There wasn't despair in that room. It was glorious 
to be in that room. And you know why it was? It's because Pat knew his identity. He knew not only who he belonged to, who he was and who he belonged to, but he knew that identity that he had in Christ. He had told Ruth before he went in, they, they came in the day before, and he said, Ruth, I think this is going to be it. And he said, but I want you to know, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. And then he told Ruth where his computer was and everything on his computer. <laughs> and that was it. And, you know, and so because of that, to be in that room, it was glorious. Again, no heart or no, no despair or anger or bitterness. And that night, you guys, seven hours. And we, that night, we, uh, we prayed. We uh, read scripture over Pat. We um, sang worship together. There was witnessing that went on. People in the, you know, this is 3 a.m., right? And there are these ICU nurses that are coming in, and you could just see tears on their faces, and they were overwhelmed. I mean, they, that happens all the time to them, I'm sure. But there was something different about that place that evening that the presence of God was there. And it was overwhelming in a good way. There was, again, worship and prayer. There was witnessing. There was reconciliation. Kathleen, who was also had been on our staff for a number of years, she and I hadn't spoken in, in a number of years. And that night we saw one another. We embraced and our hearts broke together. There was reconciliation. But the only thing that didn't happen, like, is that there wasn't an altar call where people came to know Jesus, you know, where we said, hey, who wants to surrender their life to Christ? Other than that, I mean, we had church that night. I mean, Pat was in that room and he was dying, literally, and yet we had church. And it affected my soul. My wife, Debbie's like, she's like, she's like, she said, Brad, I, she said, I don't even think you cried this much, or I don't even think you even cried at your, when your dad passed away. I'm like, I didn't. But for like four days after, I had to leave service last Sunday morning. I had to walk out. I was do, just doing announcements. I couldn't even make it through the announcements. Because it affected my soul. Peter's like, hey, you need to rid yourself of your fleshly desires because it's going to affect your soul. It's going to affect your soul. And again, that evening, that happened because Pat knew what his identity and who his identity was in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know your identity, Peter's writing this letter because people are being persecuted. People are losing their lives for their faith. And Peter's like, if you don't have a solid rock, if you don't know your identity, your life is just going to be a disaster. You know, again, Peter says that Jesus is our rock. He's our cornerstone. And for everybody in this room this morning, and for everybody listening, everybody has to be confronted with this fact. Jesus is either your cornerstone, your life, you live your life on Jesus Christ. He's the foundation for your life. You live your life in alignment with Jesus Christ. He's the one who keeps us all unified together. Either Jesus is your cornerstone or Jesus is a stumbling block to you because you've rejected him. 
There's no middle ground to that. He's either your cornerstone or he's a stumbling block. To all these, to so many of these religious people, it was like, I'm not going to submit to you, Jesus. I'm not going to surrender to you, Jesus. I think there's lots of, you know, there's, you're not the Messiah. You're not the one, the rescuer, the deliverer. I don't want you to be in charge of my life, Jesus. And when you say those things, then you're saying, Jesus, you're a stumbling block to me. You're not my cornerstone. And your identity is not going to be in Jesus Christ. So every one of us in this room has to make that decision and that choice. Everybody who's listening online has to decide, Jesus, are you my cornerstone? Or are you a stumbling block to me, Jesus? You have to have that identity. Again, he's writing this letter. And I'm just going to read to you this, this first slide, just this first verse. When Peter's writing and the previous four verses, you can go ahead and go back there, Hayden, that previous verse. The, those, the, um, I'm sorry, that's, I guess that's right. The, the first four verses, Jesus is t- or Peter's talking, he says, listen, you guys need to shake off the sin in your life. Hebrews would say, throw off the sin that so easily entangles you. And Peter says, you need to shake off the sin, get rid of all these sinful things. And you can read about it. And then he, sees, he says, you need to grow up and mature in your relationship with Christ. And part of it is by having, knowing what your identity is and knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. Not what your friends or the world or whatever says about you, but having your identity in Christ. And then Peter says this, starting in verse 4. He says, you are coming. That's close, buddy. He says, you are coming to Christ. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He says, part of the way that we throw off sin, part of the way that we grow and we mature in our walk and our relationship with Jesus Christ, he says, you are coming to Christ. And he's talking to Christians, and he's not talking about when the first time when you come to know Christ and you surrender your life, he's not talking about that salvation moment in your life. He's talking about this continued action after that, that happens. Some of us have surrendered our life to Jesus Christ and we came to know him, but then we haven't pursued him. We haven't continued to come to him. And there's no growth, there's no maturity in our lives because we're not continuing to come to Christ. And that's what Peter's talking about, this very first phrase. He says the way you grow and the way you mature, the way you have Jesus be your cornerstone is that you are coming to him on this regular basis. James chapter 4, verse 8 kind of gives another picture of this. James 4, 8 says this. God says, draw near to me and I will do what? Anybody know? I will draw near to you. And some of you are like, oh, I haven't been growing. I don't think I've been maturing. I don't know where God's presence is. And it's like, well, you know, you came to Jesus one time. You surrendered to him one time. You said, Jesus, at one time, will you be my rock? Will you be my cornerstone? I want to live my life on you. I want to live in alignment with you. Whatever you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow that for my life. But then that's been it. You haven't done that. You're not doing that on this regular. That's why we have life groups here. That's why we have North Point daily. That's why we encourage you so many other ways outside of Sunday morning. Because it's, Peter says this, when you're in the midst, he's talking to people who are being persecuted, who they feel like their lives are falling apart. He says, oh, you got to be coming to Jesus. He's the living cornerstone of God's temple. He's not dead, Peter's like. 
He's alive. We know this. He's alive. He's the cornerstone. Everything is built around Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone of God's temple. Jesus was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. Now, I could go on, and, but I'm not going to because, and there's only one verse, but I'm not going to because that's where I stopped for first service. But I think the thing is this morning is to kind of walk away and think about this idea about where am I finding my identity? About what people, what I believe about myself and what's influencing me. What's influencing my choices and my decisions. When I find myself, you know, this whole series is called When No One Is Watching. And how am I living my life when I'm, I'm you know, you know my, my, how my character is being formed and shaped when I'm not trying to impress anybody else. And it's like, oh, it comes back to are you coming to Jesus and is he the cornerstone of your life? Is that where you're finding your identity? You know, Pat was far from perfect. I'm sure Ruth and his kids would tell you, I would tell you he was far from perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. But what allowed us to be in that moment and to not be shaken was his identity was in Jesus and all of his family. We all knew that's where his identity was. And I just thought to myself, oh, Jesus, I hope when I pass from this temporal, temporary life into eternal life, that I go out with that much dignity and honor and grace in my life. We would talk to Pat throughout that night in tears. He couldn't open his eyes, but tears were streaming down his face. We would talk to him and he would move his, eye, his, eye, his forehead and his eyebrows, you know, and he was, you know, responding and, and interacting. So it's not like, you know, no. The very last thing that happened um, as we had been praying with him and speaking to him uh, and reading scripture over him. I'll read this to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Let me read this. Oh, sorry. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. This is the, at 4.10. At 4.10, we've been praying, and all of a sudden, this verse came to my mind. And I, and I read this scripture over him. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. It says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the, the righteous judge, will give to me on the day of his return. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. I read that verse and within moments, Pat deep, breathed a deep breath, and then he exhaled. About 30 seconds later, the nurse walked in. She said, I'm going to check his pulse. And she says, he's gone. He passed away. And I thought, oh, Lord, what a gift. 
to be able to go out on your words and be reminded and told that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have been faithful. And I thought, oh, Jesus, if I could only go out in such a way. And it happened, folks, because everybody in the room knew who he was. They knew where his identity was. Are your, is your life built upon the rock? Are you going to be able to survive and thrive in the midst of the crisis of your life because of your identity in Christ? Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, thank you for my friends that are here this morning. For those that are listening online, Jesus, we thank you for your word to us this morning. That you are our rock, our protector, our provider. You're our our strong tower, our fortress. You are dependable. You are never changing. Jesus, thank you that you're our cornerstone, that our life can be built upon you. I pray, Lord, for those of us who have made that confession of faith at one point in time, but have found their lives being built upon something else or somebody else or some other philosophy or some other belief, or that they, as Peter would say here, that they would come to you again this morning, Jesus, because you're living. Lord, may we recenter our hearts this morning upon you, Jesus. Jesus, some of us struggled knowing who we are. Again, would you speak into our lives about our identity in you, Jesus? Would you begin to teach that to us and reveal that to us as we study your word? And may it change our very soul. I pray for my friends who are in the midst of heartache that no one else in this room may even know about. They're in the midst of struggle They're in the midst, those that are watching online, those that are in the midst of feeling like they're in the middle of a storm, may we be aware, may my friends be aware of your presence and your love, your constant presence this morning in their lives. May we return to you, look to you. May we come to you, Jesus. May we come to you, Jesus and that you would change us to become more like you. God, I know in that room that night that my soul was changed, that I was drawn closer to you. May my friends that are experiencing that this morning, may they be drawn closer to you. Learning to depend upon you, knowing whose they are and who you are. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. I said Jesus is either going to be your cornerstone or he's going to be a stumbling stone. Which is it going to be? Either you're going to accept him and follow him and lean upon him and build your life. Or you're going to reject him and live life your own way. You're not going to submit to him, surrender to him. But if you've never done that this morning and you want to do that, you want to have that assurance... I want you to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Just pray. You can pray to yourself, Jesus, I come before you this morning. I surrender my life to you. My words, my actions, my thoughts, my beliefs, I surrender to you. 
Jesus, I want to build my life upon you. I want to know what you have to say about who I am and who I'm called to be. I want to live for you, Jesus. I believe that you came and you died and you rose again. You paid a price for my sins that I might be forgiven and put in right relationship with God. So this morning, Jesus, I invite you into my life that I can be a part of that spiritual house of God, the temple. I don't even know exactly what that means, but I want to be a part of your body, Jesus. Belong to you. So I surrender this morning. I invite you to teach me, Jesus. In your name I pray.